This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do. Good evening, listeners. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. That's rather a highlight today. We've got Erin in the studio with us. Andy and I are here. And we're going to talk about accelerating climate action. I think we always talk about this, but today it's actually the title of Bill McKibben's talk. And Bill McKibben is going to talk to us in a minute. We're also going to be taking on the giants. That means the big companies. We've got John Grimes, who's the CEO of Smart Energy Council, and he's taking on really the government and their weak energy policies and really talking up renewable energy, which he represents big time. Then Tim Buckley, who's a great friend of this program. He's the Director of um, Energy Finance Studies Australasia for IEFA and he knows all about what the Saudi Arabians are doing, what the Indians are doing, what the Chinese are doing and why are we not doing the same. So Tim Buckley uh, towards 5.30. So over to you Erin. Thanks Vivian. It's nice to um, actually be in the studio together and um, we're super pleased this week to have Bill McKibben on. It's um, it's a real privilege so we look forward to that. Um, and uh, have we got him on the line Andy? Yeah we do. Uh, here we go. I'm right here. Hello, hello. Hello Bill. Well look um, we're really pleased to have you on the line. Bill you should need no introduction to many of our listeners. Um you wrote your first book for the uh, 1989, The End of Nature, for um, a more general audience about climate change and uh, been working on uh, on this fight to uh, on the impending climate crisis ever since. So we're glad to have you in Australia. Um, we know you're here doing important work. So maybe we can just start off with talking about the purpose of your current tour. Absolutely. I'm here with all my friends at the Australian branch of 350.org, uh, and, and they're working as are our colleagues all over the world to basically accelerate the pace of this climate transition. Um, we're, we're, as you know, in a difficult place, and the most difficult part about it is that it's moving more rapidly even than scientists had thought a few years ago. Uh, every week's edition of Science or of Nature uh, has another article, the uh, abstract of which might as well include the phrase, faster than expected. We're watching our ice caps melt faster than expected. We're watching storms achieve new ferocity and fires uh, go burning places they've never burned before, and it's all happening with enormous speed. What isn't happening with enormous speed is the transition to renewable energy. And that has to accelerate dramatically to catch up with the physics of climate change. It's possible for it to happen because the engineers have brought the cost of sun and wind power down to the point where it's no longer an obstacle to its adoption. What is an obstacle, and the thing that we're working on as always, is the power of the fossil fuel industry, that power rooted in money can only be fought by the power of movements, by uh, people standing up in sufficient numbers and with sufficient vigor to really make uh, it politically impossible not to make this transition we need to make. Yeah. Look, I probably first came across your work in um, in the form of your article in the Rolling Stone magazine back in 2012, Do the Math, which I'd encourage anyone to read if they haven't, which really sets out in um, pretty plain facts where we stand and the reserves that are on the balance sheet of these fossil fuel companies that really make it completely impractical. Um, you know, it's either huge greed as you mentioned and they continue in the vein that they have or 
we can't have a planet that's habitable. And it was around um, that time that certainly I personally came across the work of BZE. And BZE has been working in this space and launched our stationary energy plan back in 2010, which laid out a 10-year progression to take Australia, which showed how it was feasibly and technically possible to move to 100% renewables. Yet we're still in this country um, in a political stalemate and really haven't moved on very far. Yes, uh, it's actually pretty astonishing to see how little Australia has managed to do, especially because you've had close at hand the, the single most powerful object lesson imaginable, the Great Barrier Reef, Australia's greatest treasure, being destroyed before your eyes and mm-hmm. and that that hasn't you know that the government's response to that over the weekend was to uh put up some money to work on every problem except climate change yeah. is uh is astonishing um and i it's it's also astonishing because you know elon musk came and demonstrated precisely the kind of speed necessary to deal with this problem Mm-hmm. took him 90 days to build the biggest battery in the world in Australia. And, uh, you know, that's precisely the kind of vigor we need to be mustering again and again and again. If we did that uh, at that kind of pace, with that kind of uh, ferocity for a few years, then we'd be on the other side of this curve. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, what we focus on at at, um, this particular radio show, certainly recently, is a lot of local actions, whether they be local government, state government, and that's where a lot of it is happening. And it was really interesting earlier in the year to see the the divestment and the legal action that the city of New York is, is involved in. And I know that that you and the 350 movement and the broader divestment movement um, and those activists were the ones that kind of created the heat under those politicians to make that happen. Um, and that looks like it's rolling out in more and more places. Do you think that's the, the strategic way to continue acting? Yes, I think it probably is, especially in countries like the United States, perhaps Australia at the moment, where action on the federal level just isn't going to take place. I mean, the easiest, most efficient way to do this would be to operate on the biggest levels possible. They don't call it global warming for nothing, you know. Mm. But uh, Washington right now is closed off against that. Uh, For the moment, Donald Trump and the Koch brothers have uh, hijacked our democracy. And so people are working at the state, city level. And it's very good news, you know. uh, uh, Dozens of major cities in the United States have now committed to 100% renewable energy, not just the obvious easy places like San Francisco, but Atlanta and San Diego and Pittsburgh and Salt Lake City and countries all, uh, cities all across the country, big states uh, are moving ahead despite Washington. I mean, California is probably the best example. And California, taken by itself, is the sixth largest economy on Earth. It's the equivalent of Germany for all intents and purposes. And it's moving fast despite Trump's efforts to hold it back. None of that makes Donald Trump into a good news story, you know. He's doing enormous damage. Mm. But he's not doing that much more damage than, say, Malcolm Turnbull, uh, even though he's obviously a, a much cruder and, and, and grosser human being. Um, um, we need leaders of all kinds moving fast. Yeah, exactly. And certainly that's not what's happened to date. Um, now... We know that um, you were, did the first talk in this current tour in Newcastle on the 27th, and um, our CEO, Vanessa Petrie, was pleased to be part of that event. And Vanessa was fantastic. She really delivered a powerful message, and uh, it, it, I was really pleased that she was there. Yeah, and it's great. And look, as an organisation, BZD's continued to keep putting out high-quality research to show that um, transition is possible and, and kind of moving that conversation forward, and yep. it's an important thing. But obviously, you know, that movement of divestments happened and happening and continuing to and, and things like these actions that is um, initiated out of New York City. 
What other steps do you think that people here in Australia can continue to make to put pressure on this? I know that in the past you've said that movements require enemies. Are we targeting the right enemies here, do you believe? Well, yeah, I think that the, that that we need to continue to break the power of the fossil fuel industry because that's the thing that's in the way. And there's lots of ways to do that. Some of them have to do with elections, but a lot of them have to do with getting in the way of the flows of money. So 35 uh, councils in Australia have divested from fossil fuel, but I think there's 401 councils in Australia altogether, so that leaves uh, a, a lot of work that can be done there. Um, um, we need adamant opposition to every new fossil fuel plan in the country. So the huge fight to stop Adani and the other fights around fracking and pipelines and things are crucial. Among other things, they drive up the cost of doing business for the fossil fuel industry, and that's a good thing. As that anything that delays and makes more costly the use of fossil fuel gives another month, another six months uh, for solar energy and wind power to get that much more cheaper to make the spreadsheet point all the more clearly in the direction of doing the right thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's important for people to look at things like where their superannuation is placed. And there's a number of online tools now that can help. Absolutely. And the the super movement, superannuation funds really are, are, are more, some of them, there are progressive examples here in Australia as good as any on the planet. Uh, it's obviously not all of them, so you do have to go and figure out which ones to back. But that money flowing in the right direction is really important. It's also just really smart for investors because people who got out of fossil fuels when we first started talking about divestments have made out like bandits financially. Uh, the fossil fuel sector underperforms the rest of the economy and the reason is obvious. They have a fast-growing competitor who has better technology that doesn't require all those fossil fuels. Yeah, exactly. What sort of pushback do you think that there's going to be? I mean, you know, these fossil fuel companies, as we've seen, they're not going to go lightly. Um, no. I mean, the pushback even in Australia has been, I mean, it's impressive to see, among other things, people, states and the federal government passing these uh, anti-protester laws, which are obviously aimed precisely at making sure nobody gets in the way of the coal and oil and gas industries. And that's really, uh, strikes me, a, a, a terrible uh, precedent in so many ways. Uh, oil destroys everything that it touches at this point, including democracies. And, and so not giving into that pushback is really key. Yeah, and one of the key fights that we're looking at at the moment is is the um, National Energy Guarantee, um, which really puts a handbrake on lots of the initiatives that's happening at a st- state level particularly. Yep. So yep. that's an ongoing fight. But look, we, we really appreciate your time today. Um, there's... If people want to go on to 350.org.au, there are talks in Sydney, May 1st, Canberra, May 2nd, Melbourne, May 3rd, Adelaide, May 4th, and also there's live streaming available. If people jump on that uh, 350.org.au, they can contact 350 and see how they can organise their own live streaming party um, because obviously not everyone can get to those live events. But to purchase tickets for those, go to the site. Or if you want to look at hosting a live streaming event, uh, 350 can help you organise and make that a reality as well. So we're really pleased to have you in the country. I'm looking forward to seeing you speak um, in Melbourne, Bill. And um, we really appreciate your efforts uh, over these over these years. And we've just got to keep on. But uh, as you say, winning slowly is the same as losing. So we've really got to up the ante. That's it. Thank you very much. Take good care there. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, we're back at the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Our next guest is John Grimes. He's the CEO of the Smart Energy Council and he's based in Canberra. He's been accused of being a green zealot and since openly criticising the NEG, which is meant to take us out of policy chaos, he's had a lot of media coverage. How are you, John? Yeah, well, thanks, Vivian. Oh, that's good. Look, for a man whose career includes time in the Air Force intelligence, 
it must sting to be told that your Smart Energy Council is not working in the national interest. Yeah, well, uh, uh, Mr Frydenberg certainly uh, made those comments as reported in the Australian newspaper on Friday. Well, I've got to say, if you're not, I take that as a bit of a, a badge of honour, to be frank. Um, you know, if, if the Minister is so concerned about our campaign to actually put in place an effective energy policy that brings down emissions, that promotes renewable energy, and the best he's got to, to, to say against that is that I'm kind of some kind of uh, you know, zealot and uh, you know, self-interested, then I think we're probably on the right track. Yeah, well, I think the national interest is to get in sync with the scientists who are telling us that we're passing tipping points in Antarctica and that we'll be lucky to stay below 1.5 degrees of warming, which is already very dangerous. So I wonder, do you, some of your allies in the smart energy sector, you know, all the different people, I know you're a peak body and you talk to a lot of people, do you think they really understand that we're at this tipping point, that we need to accelerate, as Bill McKibben's just told us, we need to move very, very fast, or are they just in it for the big money to be made? Look, I, I think that in the past, you know, the sector really was interested in, in talking about really the economics, you know, the competitive pressure, the job creation investment, which are all fantastic spin-offs. But increasingly there's a recognition, even at the very senior level, that this really is tied to climate change. That setting an, 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 an economy-wide emissions reduction target of 26% for the energy sector by, by 2030 will effectively mean that there are no new large renewable energy projects built in the period 2020 to 2030, a decade of inaction. And any serious commentator in this space would have to ask the question, how then is it possible to meet our Paris commitments? And that's all about all about the climate and about the future of our planet. Mm. And even the Paris commitments are not enough. If all the nations of the world fulfilled their, you know, uh, agreement, we'd still be on a path to three or four degrees of warming. I, I sort of just expect the industry to lobby harder. Is that too harsh for you? Yeah, look, I, I think when it comes to you know the, the national energy guarantee, I think um, you know people are starting to to suffer from policy fatigue. I think there's been a lot of policies that have been mooted, um, policies that have been you know wound back, uh, a lot of change. And I think people are, are, are thoroughly sick of the the constant you know, uh, focus on this policy area. So people's eyes are glazing over. And that is actually extremely dangerous for all of us because it means that some of the really terrible outcomes that are baked into the current policy debate are likely to come true, come true because we collectively are sleepwalking off a cliff. Um, I, I think that it's really important that people engage with this issue. What the federal government are proposing is a policy that would see no, no large renewable projects built for a decade. Basically, for the next 15, next 12 years, indeed, from where we are today, there would be nothing beyond the existing renewable energy target, which ends in 2020, and the existing commitments that states have made, which, again, will all be built out over the next couple of years. So I think people do need to engage. Not only are these classical targets, but they're baked in for a decade or more. They can't be changed by the states. So if states want to go it alone, like the ACT or Victoria or Queensland or South Australia and put in place their own targets, those will no longer be counted. Um, so the states will be prohibited from doing their own thing. Uh, and so it really is the worst of all worlds, and, uh, and, and we need to toll the bell. Um, yeah. Otherwise, yeah, I think it's just, <laughs> you know, we'll get it by default. Yeah. Well, look, when I heard about the Monash Group propping up coal in Parliament and then I saw the PM leaning on Andy Vasey to sell his AGL Liddell power station rather than transition it, I felt that really there's a fifth column sabotaging progress. I know you're an, an uh, you know, armed forces person. You'll understand that there's, there's something terrible working. These are not even really conservatives. These are not pro-business, conservative type of policies. There's something ideological going on there where the conservatives in, in places like India uh, and UK are going ahead with renewable energy. They're promoting it. I wonder now, how can you and your lobby group get 
conservatives, the real conservatives, on your side? Look, I think this is the critical issue for this policy debate in Australia. I think that the, the, the moderates, those that are interested in doing something positive for the climate, but also creating a, a fantastic business opportunity for employment, for innovation, um, for investment, that, that those people ultimately prevail on the conservative side of politics. Because at the moment, the whole debate has been hijacked by a small but powerful and very vocal minority. They've been very cunning in the way that they've run this internally. Vivian, you, you would have seen recently, I gave a presentation where I drew the conclusion that the reason that Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull doesn't move on this issue is because the secret coalition agreement between the National and Liberal parties prohibits him from doing it. Um, it's actually baked into that agreement that actually underpins his prime ministership and leadership. And I think that's outrageous. I think if the people of Australia really understood what the terms of that secret agreement really were, I think people would be outraged, and rightfully so. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I despair that that's the case. But I don't think the game's over. I think it is up to people of, um, you know, um, the prog progressive sort of, um, or should I say, you know, those more progressive elements of the conservative side of politics to stand up to actually have this debate and to prevail. Uh, and that's what I'd call on, on all of those people to do. Yeah. Well, look, your conference, the Smart Energy Conference, was huge. And we heard about things like an Asian energy hub, which will export solar energy to Indonesia and Singapore by an underwater cable. He even showed us the photo of the cables and he's got a cable company organised. And it all happened from northern Australia. You also mentioned an Ausnet pilot study where a suburban block was able to share energy and stay off the grid for 24 hours. So this is like an experimental thing. But these are the things that are in the future. Can you tell us about how smart energy can decarbonise our economy and our neighbours by you know, sharing energy with the neighbours who haven't got as much land as we've got, for example? Well, the great news is that, that as soon as you set a framework that doesn't allow people to pollute with impunity, that doesn't allow people to use our atmosphere as an open sewer to dump whatever they like into the atmosphere. As soon as you say, look, we, we believe there should be a premium on clean energy, then, in fact, that's all you need as the prerequisites. Uh, you don't need dedicated subsidies. You don't need other support. You only need an appropriate price on the avoided uh, pollution. And, and all of this happens. So the wind technology, the solar technology, and the smart energy technology. That's the intersection between um, information technology and energy systems that automate and use that clean energy in the most efficient way possible and get the best value out of that investment are set to transform the energy landscape in, in Australia and indeed around the world. But, but that is, in a sense, the technology is inevitable. Um, you know, this will happen globally. But the question is, what role will Australia play? Will we be at the forefront of, of that transformation? Will we retain intellectual property here in this country? Will we develop innovation that we take to the world? Or will we be the dumb, poor customers that buy back that, that technology, much of which was invented here in Australia, uh, and actually miss out on the fantastic once-in-a-generation opportunity that this transformation you know, represents for us. Now, I've got to say that Australia has an appalling track record when it comes to the missed opportunity of clean energy, of renewable energy. We have in the past just given it away. We haven't retained that. Uh, I think successive governments should be horsewhips for that. And I think it's time that, that we had leaders that actually look at what, what can we actually do to, to, to develop our economy, um, to, to bring skills into the country, to retain IP, to create wealth, but also do something positive for the environment. That's the sort of leadership that I want to see, and I think that's the sort of leadership that the people of Australia want to see as well. So to boil it down, your big demands are like a national renewable energy target. What are the other big demands? Yeah, so, so it's, it's about strategically investing in this sector. So what are we doing here in Australia that is a first in the world? A lot of the innovation for peer-to-peer energy trading for uh, the, the networks and transformation of, of energy communication systems is 
happening right here in Australia. That that trial you talked about, where 14 houses were effectively taken off grid for for effectively you know, almost a 24-hour period, um, 12 of those had solar panels and batteries. Well, there are almost two billion households in Australia now with solar panels, and in the next couple of years, it's not inconceivable that up to a million of those could have batteries attached. So you actually have this fantastic distributed asset that you can harness and use to the community's benefit to push down electricity prices, to make electricity clean and and available, you know, secure. Uh, and um, uh, if we harness that, if we focus on that, there's great innovation happening here that we collectively can take to the world. So we want strategic support, we want a vision, we want policy certainty, and we want we want a, pl- a price on solution so that you know, we don't just continue to use the atmosphere as an open sewer. Yeah. Well, my last question to you, John, is um, something. Uh, Tristan Edis from the Green Energy Markets, he said that this government, this NIG policy, is not driving any emissions reductions and they're abandoning the Emissions Reduction Fund as well, I think. And he said people aren't waiting till the next election. They're installing solar panels. In the last month, I think the last quarter, they 56% increase in solar panels on roofs were installed. And then there was Oliver Yates at your conference, and he spoke to the industry, all these people there from wind and solar and batteries and all the efficiencies and other add-on things that are in your industry. And Oliver Yates said climate change will be disruptive, the transition costs will be abrupt, so feel free to be disruptive yourselves. And I'd like to then leave it to you. What's the battle plan? Well, look, I think, we, I think um, you know, I, I'm, I'm torn. In the past, I would have said this is just inevitable and the market will take care of it. Today, I'm not so sure. Governments do have a significant ability to disrupt, to knock things off track, to set things back. Um, you know, look look at um, you know at, at other debates that we have in the community. Depending on the leadership at the time, we either deal with with these things today, or we could be dealing with them in twenty years' time. So I think that we should not take for granted that this will just happen, and that there's nothing that we need to do about it. I think we do need to take personal action. That means both in terms of you know how you spend your dollar. Um, the investments you make to ca- take control of your own energy and, and back clean energy, uh, but also political action is imperative. That means mobilising and putting pressure to bear because the only thing that moves politicians is public opinion. Thank you very much. So that was John Grimes. And thank you, John, for your Smart Energy Conference. It was a free conference, and I really liked not having to go cap in hand and asking for a media pass, and I was able to circulate there and meet so many people, and there's a lot happening, really. So thank you for being, you know, one of the coordinators of all that, and I hope we'll we'll hear from you again. Thank you. So that was John Grimes, Smart Energy Council. And after break, we'll just go to Tim Buckley. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. And thank you, Andy, for that lovely music. Did you do music? Um, our next speaker is Tim Buckley. He's with us from Sydney. He's a financial analyst with global experience, but he also has his finger on the pulse of community climate campaigns. And he is a friend of this program. He's been on this program many times, and I always appreciate his sort of insider's reports. His title is Director of Energy Finance Studies Australasia for IEFA, and he gave a talk at the Smart Energy Conference showing how far behind we are from the global perspective, which we've just heard from Bill McKibben, also astonishing Bill McKibben said that we've got so far behind. So welcome, Tim. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to hear you. Look, we're still exporting coal and there are mines from New South Wales to Queensland, not even mentioning Adani, that are set to expand. They've got permission, they're getting permission, it's all in the pipeline. How do you see Australia's dependence on coal and gas exports in this global context? I think the global context is extremely important to understanding the risk that Australia is actually facing over the medium term from decisions being made right now that will have multi-decade implications and yet they seem to be made in isolation by the Australian government 
notwithstanding the fact that there is this dramatic technology-driven transformation impacting the global electricity markets right now, right today, and it's across the whole world, it's across America, China, India, all of them are embracing technology change. Maybe America, like Australia, reluctantly, but they're embracing it nonetheless because it's a low-cost source of new generation. But in China it is, and India, it's not only the low-cost source of generation, it's part of a wider strategic government policy initiative to deal with rising pollution issues and uh, as well as energy security issues. So... To me, it's a technology-driven, deflationary, global story, and Australia just seems to be ignoring it and looking to seek short-term fossil fuel expansion when, in fact, we probably should be going... Well, not probably. We should undoubtedly be going in exactly the opposite direction, using the limited time available to transition our economy, transition communities, and work towards being part of the solution. Well, could we learn something from Saudi Arabia? You said at the conference the kings of oil are planning to be the kings of solar. Absolutely. To, to me, probably the landmark energy transaction or announcement of 2018 was by the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia in conjunction with SoftBank, which is a company owned and founded by the richest man in Japan, and the two of them have announced a joint venture to build 200,000 megawatts of solar capacity across Saudi Arabia by 2030, and that is a $200 billion investment. And it's beyond visionary. It is just um, unbelievable in its ambition and scope, and a lot of commentators have said it's impossible. Nothing is impossible when it comes to SoftBank. SoftBank (laughs) raised a $100 billion global technology fund last year. It was oversubscribed and closed within days of announcing the capital raising. It's the biggest capital raising in world history. And SoftBank, along with Saudi Arabia, along with Apple, along with Foxconn, in other words, four of the richest groups in the world, subscribe to that technology fund. And that is the fund that's going to be investing in this solar. So the land's available, the policy is available, the capital is available, the labour's available, the sun is available, and the need is there. And when all of those five, six things align, to me, it's almost inevitable. That sort of policy announcement, a $200 billion visionary investment in the future means exactly how you introduced it, that the king of oil becomes the king of solar globally. And in doing so, they're looking to transform their entire economy and they've got the capital and the commitment, the policy commitment, to actually see it through. So I think that is probably the most exciting announcement we will see in energy markets globally this year. Well, I can imagine the listeners are very excited to hear what you've said, but can you just tell us, they don't need all of that electricity themselves. They're planning to export it, aren't they, and and create other industries added on. So can you just add that little bit of information to us? Yeah, it's because energy is the core of every economy. And so you're right, their total demand for energy for electricity at the moment sits at around 70,000 megawatts. So they're proposing to build capacity that will be three times that. But of course, the sun in Saudi Arabia is only out for maybe 12 hours of the day. So for the other half of the 24 hours, they will need other sources of energy. Clearly, storage is going to be a key understated part of their program so they will be building some form of storage capacity for that electricity and a second part of that is because unlike Australia they can't use pumped hydro storage because of too extreme evaporation so dams aren't readily available but um, in the absence of enormous pumped hydro storage they will probably have to as part of that development program lead the world in innovation in the development of hydrogen as a store of electricity or ammonia as a store of electricity and or straight out exports of electricity through cables. So any one or all of those three 
avenues are probably core parts of their strategy. They didn't go into that in a lot of detail. But the other half is the development of ancillary sectors. So I would imagine Saudi Arabia plans to build a massive polysilicon plant, then downstream vertically integrate that into um, silicon wafers, solar cells and solar module manufacturing so they get the entire spectrum of the value chain all the way from polysilicon through to the development and installation of solar modules. That creates a virtuous closed loop because solar electricity can then be used to drive the polysilicon production and then they can export solar modules and polysilicon and take on the Chinese as a low-cost supplier of the solar industry itself and all of the add-on industries that will come with that. So it's all about the crown prince of Saudi Arabia's motive here is not to be a world leader in solar. It is to transform his entire economy because he knows on a 30-, 40-year view, oil becomes redundant. And as the biggest producer of oil in the world and the biggest exporter of oil in the world, their economy is uniquely exposed to the energy transformation that is looking us right in the face right now. And unlike our federal government, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia has his eyes open and he's looking to seize the opportunity. Well, coming back to our government, I sort of really hate talking about the neg and everything. It's getting so boring. But at the Smart Energy Conference, you were not the only one to say Australia's energy policy is in chaos. There was Kobad Bavnagri from Bloomberg, and he said investment in renewables in Australia will taper off after 2020. I wonder, is the grid here ready to take in this new and disruptive big solar and wind input? And you said something about just let Audrey Silberstein <laughs> take control. That's from AEMO. Could you elaborate on that? Like, how can we get out of this policy chaos? Yeah, it's, it is a chaotic situation. At the moment, we've got um, a false uh, dawn to some degree. Green energy markets estimates that there is over 5,000 megawatts of renewable energy projects under development across Australia in both wind and solar, that's about 7 or $8 billion of investment directly in new renewable energy transformation capacity right now in Australia today. But the trouble is the grid, as you said, is not ready to deal with that magnitude of new capacity. It's all variable, so when the wind isn't blowing, the wind farms aren't going to be generating a lot of electricity. When the night comes, solar is obviously not going to be generating electricity. So it's a variable source of generation. It's zero emissions. It's low cost, but it is variable. And the grid needs to be modernised to accommodate that. Now, without appropriate long-dated energy policy planning, the grid won't have the right investment made in the right time frame to actually maintain that transformation. So like COBAT, I do see a situation where we're going to get an overbuild this year and next the grid's going to start seeing massive curtailment, wastage of free electricity effectively, and um, that curtailment, curtailment will scare off future investment until the policy framework is put in place and the investment in the grid is put in place. Now, someone like Audrey Zimmerman is perfectly positioned to drive that policy change. She has her eyes open. She worked in New York. She ran the transformation of the New York electricity grid, and she was brought out a year and a half ago by um, Prime Minister Turnbull, put in charge in a position of authority to help drive our transformation and now she's being stymied by the Energy Security Board. So she's one of the five members of the Energy Security Board, but obviously is not in a position to drive the policy forward. So unfortunately, she's got the, the absolute right framework, the right understanding of the disruption that's coming, but doesn't at the moment have the capacity to implement all the changes she wants. So my comment at the uh, conference was put her in charge, give her an open mandate to actually transform and prepare our economy, our electricity grid, and we would be perfectly positioned in the next 
two, three, four, five years to transform and lead a world energy transformation rather than be the laggard we are today. Mm. Well, listen, we're talking to Tim Buckley from IEFA. Tim, I don't understand why a right-wing capitalist government is subsidising the coal, gas and the land clearing that is causing climate change. You know, that's like killing the golden goose. (laughs) The golden egg is the future and they're killing it. And as Oliver Yates said, it's not economically rational. Can you tell me how these industries have corrupted government? Their power seems perverse, while the wind and solar and battery companies seem like a, a cottage industry to some investors, as you said. Yeah, it's it's very much the uh, bird in the hand versus two in the bush issue, but in this case it's five in the bush because the opportunities are so much more important. But it, it's unfortunately, I think our federal government is saying, well, hang on, Australia is going to be the largest exporter of LNG in the world by the end of this decade. We're going to be, we already are, the number one exporter of coking coal. We're the number two exporter of thermal coal. We have a great opportunity to crystallise huge amounts of export revenue from exporting these products while we still can, so let's run with that. But at the end of the day, when you're in a hole, the first thing you should do is stop digging. Um, Unfortunately, our government thinks it's a good idea to keep digging deeper and deeper into that hole and rather than actually working on the transition of our economy. And it's it's under this misguided view that... of well, Actually, misguided. It's the forecast that the International Energy Agency has been publishing repeatedly for the last decade, and they've repeatedly got it wrong. They do an annual review of world energy markets. They've been transitioning their forecast. They admit repeatedly that they get it wrong, and then they keep making the same mistakes. And so, I mean, just just today, an announcement out of India. India is the third largest electricity market in the world. They're the second largest producer, importer, and consumer of coal in the world. And the Indian government announced they were going to launch 20,000 megawatts of new solar tenders. That was an announcement today. So the biggest, second biggest consumer, producer, importer of coal in the world, and the government is fixated on one thing, driving a transition to zero emissions, renewable energy, as fast as they possibly can. I just don't understand how the government down in Canberra seems to be missing all of those announcements because they're literally coming every week in India. There's mind-bogglingly large transactions. Okay, not 200 gigawatts like the Saudi Arabia one, but that was 200 gigs over 12 years. This is 20 gigawatts in one year, and it's only one announcement. And India's energy minister said, oh, by the way, we want to do 40,000 megawatts this year alone. That would be a fourfold expansion on last year's investment by India. And that's that's the second largest importer of coal in the world. So they're clearly saying they want to move away Meanwhile, our government seems to be hell-bound on capturing the dollar of export revenues today and effectively in denial that the market is going to evaporate over the next one to two decades and we'll be left stranded with all these assets. Uh, They won't be assets, they'll be liabilities because, of course, the government's borrowing to invest. So where there's investment, by definition, there's generally debt-funded liabilities associated with that and Australia is going to be left holding the bag. Yes, and I know that's your big area of um, stranded assets and risk and so on, but there's also a moral quantity to this. When I interview people in Bangladesh, for example, half their country's underwater in the last last August, I interviewed someone, a climate scientist, and he said, oh, well, I can tell you, I can name names of climate criminals. And, you know, Australia is a big part of that. Some of these companies that are making these short-term profits are, in fact, creating present-day complete suffering uh, for many of our neighbours and I just hate to hear that and it's so shaming and I also went to a conference for doctors, you know, um, doctors for climate leadership and Bob Brown interviewed them and he said, look, all the time I was in Canberra, the lobbyists for, you know, coal and gas and forestry, logging and all that would lob in wherever he'd just be in a cafe and people would pop in, hello, Bob, and pass their card over to him and try and get an an interview. And he said, I never had anyone from the renewable industry or, you know, the climate sort of 
activists like all the people in this studio, you know, because they, they're too polite. They don't come in like that. Do you think that's the problem, that we're not forceful enough? Absolutely. I mean, it does come down to I mean, all those lobbyists, and I do go to Canberra regularly to, well, not that regularly, but we can't afford to, um, but you're right. You see them for one renewable energy advocate, you'll see 10 or 20 advocates swarming through Parliament House, lobbyists for foreign thermal fossil fuel companies. And they are absolutely in it for themselves. They're in it for their corporates. They are multinationals in the main. They are unanswerable to the people of Australia. They're not paying their fair share of taxes. They certainly have no intention of cleaning up the mess they're leaving. And in fact, um, yeah, I think... The first thing we should do is ban foreign lobbyists from lobbying our government and effectively bribing them, um, coercing them, whatever you call it. It's a corruption of the democratic process where the people of Australia are not being actually listened to by our politicians because they're being drowned out by all of these fossil fuel lobbyists. And as you say, they're just swarming all over Parliament House every day, day in, day out. So, unfortunately, our politicians, they hear the same story 10, 20 times. It's well rehearsed by these lobbyists, and there's no other word for it. They are self-serving lobbyists for private, foreign-vested interests, and the occasional Australian environmentalist or lobbyist for the renewable energy industry comes in and just gets drowned out, in, and they don't have the resources, they don't have the clout. The industry is too young and it's it's not as profitable at the moment as the incumbent industry. And for whatever reason, the politicians are failing to understand or hear from the constituents who are actually voting them in and then being drowned out in the uh, process once they get into office. It's really obvious when you're in Parliament House. Yeah, well, I'm really glad you've put that so strongly because, you know, you, you've been there. Um, listeners often tell me that they just feel despair and the picture is so bad, the corruption really, that, you know, nothing seems to, you can't get through as a citizen. And a great percentage of the Australian people really want this transition to happen. I think something like 70 or 80% of people are polled to say that, but it doesn't force policy in each election. It seems to be down the bottom of the list. But you have painted a picture at the conference of an energy transformation that's inevitable and that it's happening faster than anyone thought um, possible. And that's a real tonic. And I would like listeners to finish by hearing that. I wish the media would cover it more also. But just to sum up, what are the main signs that you're seeing? That's right. And I draw inspiration and optimism by studying China and India. Now, they're very different drivers. I mean, they're probably the number one driver is air pollution in both countries. Energy security is a very clear second. But technology and investment is a clear number three driver. But at the end of the day, the governments over there understand it. And for whatever reason, China and India are the two largest coal producers and consumers. So for some unknown reason their economy and their politicians have managed to raise themselves above the parapet they've understood the magnitude and the opportunities that are coming with that change and for whatever reason the vested interests have managed to uh, be subsumed in the national interest and ultimately i think it's because of air pollution you only have to travel around china in india to understand the the um magnitude of the air pollution pressures and coal is the number one source of that air pollution along with oil, diesel, cars and then agricultural waste burning. But at the end of the day, for whatever reason, the government politicians are listening. They've realised it's in their own country's economic interest to embrace these opportunities. And when India and China collectively move Australia will follow inevitably and the opportunities will be there. But I do look at India and say, well, it's, it's leadership, which political leadership, which is creating the acceleration of change. And Australia's energy minister needs to actually look and provide leadership for Australia. 
And if it's not going to be Josh Frydenberg, I am certain Mark Butler will provide, he'll step up, he'll provide that leadership. Yeah. So I think we just need to vote for someone. With, Josh knows exactly what's happening. Yeah. I mean, it's very clear in everything he says, but he's being hamstrung by his right wing and he needs to raise above that and either implement a policy or, I hope, Australian voters will make that decision and vote in someone who wants to be an energy minister to create a framework, a bipartisan, forward-looking framework and get away from the vested interests of the fossil fuel lobbyists. It's happening anyway in China and India, and so we will inevitably be drawn into that. But the 5,000 megawatts of renewables being built across Australia today says that industry, banks, finance and the community combined are all ready to move. We just need the government to either get out of the way or better still, lead the transition. Well, you've said the word visionary several times. And what's the name of that Indian energy minister that you like so much? Yeah, he's now the coal minister, but he's just as visionary. <laughs> Piyush Goyal, he, <laughs> uh, he has been a breath of fresh air, but at the end of the day, he has handed over the reins to a new minister, R.K. Singh, but... I think clearly this has now moved so far that Prime Minister Modi has bet his prime ministership on transitioning. Prime Minister Modi talks about the solar revolution every time he talks. So it's Piyush Goyal, it's R.K. Singh, and better still, the Prime Minister of India leading the charge. And you get the same in China, you get it in India. And I would look forward to the day when our Prime Minister and our Energy Minister talks about the same visionary leadership in energy. Oh, well, let's hope they're listening to this program. Thank you very much, Tim. So we've been talking to Tim Buckley. Thank you very much for being on this program. Tim is from the IEFA. He's the Director of Energy Finance Studies for the Australasian region. We talked to John Grimes, CEO of Smart Energy Council, and Erin talked to Bill McKibben from 350.org. Over to you, and I'd like to also thank the team, which is Erin and Andy in the studio and Roger behind the scenes, and Salut Babette. Over to you, Erin. Thanks, Vivian. Um, just a reminder to people to get along and hear Bill talk. He's a great public speaker and you'll learn a lot and be inspired. And if you go to the 350.org.au, the dates are on the front there. Um, Sydney, May 1, Canberra, May 2, Melbourne, May 3, Adelaide, May 4. If you can't make it to any of those dates, get in touch with 350 and uh, they can show you how to organise a live streaming viewing party in your community. So great to be on the show uh, with you today, Vivian, and it was great to be able to bring those guests and uh, look forward to next week.